Welcome to Scavengeology Podcast Episode 2. Um, this is um, kind of experimenting with a short one here. Um, I thought I'd go over one of the uh, posts that I did on this really cool historical narrative, um, and those are great uh, sources of, of history. Uh, but this is a historical narrative of a guy named Thomas Brown, and I came across this when I was researching something else, and uh, this is one of the guys who, during the French and Indian War, was with uh, Robert Rogers, and uh, and those are basically the first, very first, uh, you know, American Army Rangers, even though uh, we were basically British at that time. But this was just a, a grunt. Uh, I think he was, uh, you know, 18 years old or so, and uh, this was kind of his first uh, foray into combat, and uh, he survived this extraordinary ordeal and. And lived to tell about it, and and told his story in in the form of a book that he published in uh, late 18th century, or not that late, anyways. And uh, you know, kind of sold it for a little bit of nothing. And and uh, and it's one of the great sources that we have today, really, of of uh, warfare for that area. But um, this is these are his words. As I am but a youth, I shall not make those remarks on the difficulties I have met with or the kind appearance of a good God for my preservation, as one of the riper years might do, but shall leave that to the reader as he goes along, and shall only beg his prayers that mercies and afflictions may be sanctified to me, and relate matters of fact as they occur to my mind. Thomas Brown, and I correct myself, he was 17 years old, um, um, one of the very first Army Rangers with the legendary Major Robert Rogers, um, and on January 21st, 1757, um, he was out scouting with the Rangers, and uh, they were on snowshoes, and that was something common, and it's not common, but that was something common to Rogers Rangers, is that they would go out in the wintertime when everyone else is camped up for the winter, and they'd go out scouting wearing snowshoes, and this is in in upstate New York, and sometimes in the deep snow. And so he was with Major Rogers and 76, I believe, other Rangers. And, and that's according to him. I've seen some other, other accounts that have different numbers of men, but this is one of what would be called the Battle of Snowshoes. This is not the only one, so it can get confusing. Um, they got engaged in an epic battle with the uh, French and the Indian forces near what was called Fort St. Frederick at Crown Point, New York. And this was, I believe, the first, quote, battle on snowshoes. Um, and where I first learned about this was a book that I was reading called White Devil by Stephen Brumwell. And um, he just quoted it in a couple places in there. And so, of course, I had to find the full narrative and uh, get it up on my website. So that's what I did. It took me a while to actually have to type it out myself. Uh, <clears throat> so, in this battle, 17-year-old Thomas was shot and wounded and captured. This was a five-hour firefight. Uh, he survived his wounds and went into captivity with the Indians and ultimately escaped from what was described as you know, two years of misery. Uh, he saw people burned at the stake. He saw legendary figures whose name you know, we recognize today. And he ended up with what was, when it comes down to it, a really legendary drinking story. Um, Thomas published this narrative in 1760, and so actually pretty early on. And 
and each one of these narrative booklets were sold for eight coppers. And they actually sold well. Uh, they reprinted it again in 1761. And so I had posted the text in its entirety up on my website um, if you want to find it there. Uh, but this would make a great miniseries, really, or a movie. And these are his words. I was born in Charlestown, near Boston, in New England, in the year 1740, and put an apprentice by my father to Mr. Mark White of Acton. And in the year 1756, in the month of May, I enlisted into Major Rogers' Corps of Rangers in the company commanded by Captain Spikeman. We marched for Albany, where we arrived the 1st of August, and from thence to Fort Edward. I was out on several scouts, in one of which I killed an Indian. I was born in Charlestown, near Boston, in New England, in the year 1740, and put an apprentice by my father to Mr. Mark White of Acton. And I believe that's Acton, Massachusetts, and I, I tried to figure out what that guy, what he was apprenticed doing. I, my best guess, uh, educated guess, is that he may have been a clockmaker. So that was the year 1756. And in the month of May, I enlisted into Majors Roger, excuse me, Major Rogers Corps of Rangers and the company commanded by Captain Spikeman. You'll hear about Spikeman a little later. We marched for Albany, where we arrived the 1st of August, and from thence to Fort Edward. I was out on several scouts, in one of which I killed an Indian. On the 18th of January, 1757, we marched on a scout from Fort William Henry. Major Rogers himself headed us. All were volunteers that went on this scout. We came to the road leading from Ticonderoga to Crown Point, and on Lake Champlain, which was snowed over, or frozen over, rather, we saw about 50 sleighs, and that's not a typo. These were sleighs going across the ice. The major thought it proper to attack and ordered us all, about 60 in number, to lay an ambush, and when they were near enough, we were ordered to pursue them. I happened to be near the major when he took the first prisoner, a Frenchman. I singled out one and followed him. They fled some one way and some another, but I soon came up with him and took him. We took seven in all the rest escaping, some to Crown Point, and some returned to uh, Ticonderoga. When we had brought the prisoners to land, the Major examined them, and they informed him that there were 35 Indians and 500 regulars at Ticonderoga. It being a rainy day, we made a fire and dried our guns. The Major thought it best to return to the Fort William Henry in the same path in which we came. The snow being very deep, we marched in Indian file, same thing as single file, and kept the prisoners in the rear, lest we should be attacked. Now, this um, this was what was being discussed in the White Devil book that I was reading. And, you know, rangers are famous for having rules of guerrilla warfare and sneaking around in the woods. And really, in hindsight, it was a bad decision to go back the same way that you came in deep snow because they were able to follow the... the uh, you know, they were able to track you that much easier rather than doing something uh, else such as splitting up um, or somehow trying to conceal the tracks. Um, but, you know, I think the consensus is that Rogers probably had his reasons, um, such as, you know, speed of retreat. So it's going to be a lot faster to go back in your same tracks as to make new tracks in the deep snow. Anyways, we proceeded in this order about a mile and a half, and as we were ascending a hill, and the center of our men were at the top, the French, the number of 400, besides 30 or 40 Indians, fired on us before we discovered them. The Major ordered us to advance. So they got caught in a devastating ambush here, and the uh, French and the Indians, you know, discovering the route back, uh, overtook them, 
set up an ambush, and, and here they are. I received a wound from the enemy, the first shot they made on us, through the body, upon which I retired into the rear. To the prisoner I had taken on the lake, knocked him on the head, and killed him, lest he should escape and give bad information to the enemy. And as I was going to place myself behind a large rock, there started up an Indian from the other side. I threw myself backwards into the snow, and it being very deep, sunk so low that I broke my snowshoes. I had time to pull them off, but I was obliged to let my shoes go with them. One Indian threw his tomahawk at me, and another was just seizing me. But I happily escaped and got to the center of our men, and fixed myself behind a large pine, where I loaded and fired at every opportunity. After I had discharged six or seven times, there came a ball and cut off my gun just at the lock. So, it, he would have been carrying a flintlock, um, either a, a rifle or a musket, probably a smooth smoothbore musket, which is, is loaded more quickly than a rifle. And, you know, six or seven times put in reference, that, that might be, you know, at, at the fastest, maybe one a minute, probably, especially when, when you're under fire. And um, so um, he probably wasn't loading and then firing directly without, uh, you know, aiming. So, you know, th that could be a significant period of time. About half an hour after, I received a shot in my knee. I crawled again into the rear, and I was turning about. I received a shot in my shoulder. The engagement held as near as I could, as near as I could guess, five and a half hours. And as I learnt after I was taken, we killed more of the enemy than we were in number. By this time, it grew dark, and the firing ceased on both sides. And as we were so few, the Major took the advantage of the night and escaped with the well-men. Without informing the wounded of his design, lest they should inform the enemy, and they should pursue him before he had got out of their reach. Captain Spikeman, one baker, and myself, all very badly wounded, made a small fire and sat about a half an hour. When looking round, we could not see any of our men. Captain Spikeman called the Major Rogers, but received no answer, except from the enemy at some distance. Upon this, we concluded our people were fled. All hope of escape now vanished. We were so wounded that we could not travel. I could but just walk the others, the others could scarce move. We therefore concluded to surrender ourselves to the French. Just as we came to this conclusion, I saw an Indian coming towards us over a small rivulet that parted us in the engagement. I crawled so far from the fire that I could not be seen, though I could see what, though I could see what was acted at the fire. The Indian came to Captain Spikeman, who was not able to resist, and stripped and scalped him alive. Baker, who was lying by the captain, pulled out his knife to stab himself which the Indian prevented and carried him away. That's a pretty bad situation when you pull out your own knife to stab yourself uh, to prevent being taken captive. We can only imagine what kinds of stories he had been told or things that he knew to cause him to do that. Seeing this dreadful tragedy, I concluded, if possible, to crawl into the woods and there die of my wound. But not being far from Captain Spikeman, he saw me and begged me, for God's sake, Give him a tomahawk, that he might put an end to his life. I refused him, and exhorted him as well as I could as I could to pray for mercy, as he could not live many minutes in that deplorable condition, being on the frozen ground, covered with snow. He desired me to let his wife know, if I lived to get home, the dreadful death that he died. As I was traveling as well as I could, or rather creeping along, I found one of our people dead. I pulled off his stockings. He had no shoes and put them on my own legs. 
By this time the body of the enemy had made a fire, and had a large number of sentries out on our path, so that I was obliged to creep quite round them before I could get into the path. But just before I came to it I saw a Frenchman behind a tree, within two rods of me, with the fire shining right on him, preventing his seeing me. They cried out about every quarter of an hour, in French, All is well! And while he that was so near me was speaking, I took the opportunity to creep away that he might not hear me, and by this means I got clear of him and got into our path. But the snow and the cold put my feet into such pain as I had no shoes that I could not go on. I therefore sat down by a brook and wrapped my feet in my blanket. But, but my body being cold by sitting still, I got up and crawled along in this miserable condition the remainder of the night. The next day, at about eleven o'clock, I heard the shouts of Indians behind me, and I suppose they saw me. Within a few minutes, four came down a mountain, running towards me. I threw off my blanket, and fear and dread quickened my pace for a while. But by reason of the loss of so much blood from my wounds, I soon failed. When they were within a few rods of me, they cocked their guns and told me to stop. But I refused, hoping they would fire and kill me on the spot, which I chose rather than the dreadful death that Captain Spikeman died of. They soon came up with me, took me by the neck, and kissed me. On searching my pockets, they found some money, which they were so fond of, that in trying, who, trying to see who could get the most, they had they liked to have killed me. They took some dry leaves and put them into my wounds, and then turned about and ordered me to follow them. I found that there was a publication of a, a newspaper called the Boston Newsletter that was printed on February 2nd of 1757, and it recorded uh, Major Rogers' account of the battle, and it included a list of the killed and wounded and taken in this engagement. And it listed... Um, you know, several people. It included uh, the Captain Robert Rogers, as he was known at the time, was himself wounded in the hand and in the head. Um, his second in command, Samuel Martin, was badly wounded in the belly and hip. Thomas Burnside, for example, wounded through the hand, and so on. Out of Captain Spikeman, excuse me, out of Captain Spikeman's company, on the other hand, Spikeman himself is listed as killed. Uh, Lieutenant Kennedy is killed. And then, the next, we have Thomas Brown listed as killed. And, of course, he was not killed, but he was recorded as one of the killed at that time. And back to the narrative. When we came near the main body of the enemy, the Indians made a live shout, as they call it, when they bring a prisoner in alive, which is different from the shout they make when they bring in scalps, which they call a dead shout. The Indians ran to meet us, and one of them struck me with a cutlass, which is a sword, across the side. He cut through my clothes, but he did not touch my flesh. Others ran against me with their heads. I asked if there was no interpreter, upon which a Frenchman cried, I am one. I asked him if this was the way that they treated their prisoners to let them be cut and beat to pieces by the Indians. He desired me to come to him, but the Indians would not let me, holding me one by one arm and another by the other. But there arising a difference between the four Indians that took me, they fell to fighting which their commanding officer seeing, he came and took me away and carried me to the interpreter, who drew his sword and, pointing at my breast, charged me to tell the truth or he would run me through. He then asked me what number our scout consisted of. I told him fifty. He asked me where they were gone. I told him, I suppose, as they were so numerous, they could tell the best. I said I told him wrong, for he knew of more than one hundred that were slain. 
I told him we had lost but 19 in all. He said there were as many officers, on which he led me to Lieutenant Kennedy. I saw he was much tomahawked by the Indians. He asked me if he was an officer. I told him he was a lieutenant, and then he took me to another, who I told him was an ensign. From thence he carried me to Captain Spikeman, who was laying in the place I had left him. They had cut off his head and fixed it on a pole. I begged for a pair of shoes and something to eat. The interpreter told me I should have relief when I came to Ticonderoga, and that would be Fort Ticonderoga, which was but one mile away, or a mile and a quarter away, and then delivered me to the four Indians that had taken me. The Indians gave me a piece of bread and put a pair of shoes on my feet. And remember, this is in deep snow in the winter. About this time, Robert Baker, mentioned above, was brought where I was. We were extremely glad to see each other, though we were in such distressed condition. He told me of five men that were taken. We were ordered to march on towards Ticonderoga. But Baker replied that he could not walk. An Indian then pushed him forwards, but he could not go, and therefore sat down and cried whereupon an Indian took him by the hair and was going to kill him with his tomahawk. I was moved with pity for him, and as weak as I was, I took his arms over my shoulders and was enabled to get him to the fort. So he basically helped carry Baker on his shoulders to Fort Ticonderoga, about a mile and a quarter away, it sounds like. We were immediately sent to the guardhouse and about a half an hour after brought before the commanding officer. And that would be of the Fort Ticonderoga, who by, <clears throat> excuse me, by his interpreter examined us separately, after which he again sent us to the guardhouse. The interpreter came and told us that we were to be hanged the next day because we had killed the prisoners that we had taken on the lake, but was afterwards so kind to tell us that this was done only to terrify us. And about an hour after, a doc came, uh, after that, in came a doctor and his mate and dressed our wounds, and the commanding officer sent us a quart of claret. We lay all night on the boards without blankets. The next day I was put into the hospital. The other prisoners were carried another way. Here I tarried till the 19th of February, and the Indians insisted on having me to carry their homes, carry to their homes, and broke into the hospital. But the sentinel called the guard and turned them out, after which the commanding officer prevailed with them to let me stay till the 1st of March, by which time I was able to walk about the fort. As I was one day in the interpreter's, interpreter's lodging, as I was one day in the interpreter's lodging, there came in ten or twelve Indians with the scalps they had taken in order to have a war dance. They set me on the floor and put seven of the scalps on my head while they danced. When it was over, they lifted me up in triumph. But as I went and stood by the door, two Indians began to dance, a live dance, and one of them threw a tomahawk at me to kill me. But I watched his motion and I dodged the weapon. I lived with the interpreter till the 1st of March, and when General Rigaud came to the fort with about 9,000 men in order, as they said, to make an attempt on Fort William Henry, their design was to scale the walls, for which purpose I saw them making scaling ladders. The day before they marched, the general sent for me and said, Young man, you're a likely fellow. It's pity you should live with such an ignorant people as the English. You had better live with me. I told him I was willing to live with them. He answered, I should go with him where he went. He replied, or I replied, perhaps he would have me go to war with him. He said that was the thing. He wanted me to direct him to Fort William Henry and show him where he might scale the walls. 
I told him I was sorry that uh, a gentleman should desire such a thing of a youth or endeavor to draw him away from his duty. He added he would give me 7,000 uh, um, livers on his return. I replied that I was not to be bought with money, to be a traitor to my country and assist in destroying my friends. He smiled and said, In war you must not mind even father or mother. When he found out that he could not prevail with me, by all the fair promises he made, he ordered me back to the fort, and had two other prisoners brought before him, to whom he made the same proposals as he had made to me, to which they consented. The next day I went to the room where they were and asked them if they had been with the general. They said they had, and that they, they were to have 7,000 livers apiece as a reward. I asked them if that was the value of their fathers and mothers and of their country. They said that they were obliged to go. I said that the general could not force them, and added that if they went on such a design, they must never return among their friends, for if they did, and Baker and I should live to get home, we would endeavor that they should be hanged. At this time a smith came and put irons on my feet. I would be a blacksmith. But the general gave those two men who promised to go with him a blanket, a pair of stockings, and shoes. They were taken out of the guardhouse and marched with the French-ass pilots. The general did not succeed. He had only burnt our bateaux, which are a type of boat, and returned to Ticonderoga. The poor fellows never had the reward, but instead of that, they were sent to the guardhouse and put in irons. Soon after this, I was taken out of the irons and went to live for the interpreter, till the 27th of March, at which time the Indians took me with them in order to go to Montreal, and set me to drew, draw a large sled with provisions, my arms being tied with a rope. By the time we got to Crown Point, I was so lame that I could not walk. The Indians went ashore and built a fire, and then told me I must dance, to which I complied, rather than be killed. When we sat off again, I knew not how to get rid of my sled, and I knew I was not able to draw it, pull it, but this fancy came into my head. I took three squaws on my sled, and pleasantly told them I wished I was able to draw them. All this took with the Indians. They freed me of the sled and gave it to the other prisoners. They stripped off all my clothes and gave me a blanket. And the next morning they cut off my hair and painted me with needles and Indian ink, pricked on the back of my hand, the form of one of the scaling ladders, which the French made to carry to Fort William Henry. I understood they were vexed at the French for the disappointment. We traveled about nine miles on Lake Champlain, and when the sun was two hours high, we stopped, they made a fire, and took one of the prisoners that had not been wounded and were going to cut off his hair as they had done mine. He foolishly resisted them, upon which they prepared to burn him. But the commanding officer prevented it at this time. But the next night they made a fire, stripped and tied him to a stake, and the squaws cut pieces of pine, like skewers, and thrust them into his flesh, and set them on fire, and then fell to powwowing and dancing round him, and ordered me to do the same. Love of life obliged me to comply, for I expect no better treatment if I refused. With a bitter and heavy heart I feigned myself merry. They cut the poor man's cords and made him run backwards and forwards. That would have been, I believe that they cut his, his entrails out and uh, his intestines and made him run backwards and forwards and get tied up in them. I heard the poor man's cries to heaven for mercy, and at length, through extreme anguish and pain, he pitched himself into the flames and expired. You know, there's only a few um, 
personal narratives that survive that record things like this. I mean, there are some people in some articles I've seen where they, you know, they're somewhat skeptical as if maybe some of this uh, could have been made up. Um, I think s many of them are similar enough to, to things like this that, I mean, it sounds pretty credible to me. It'd certainly be a bizarre thing to make up, pretty, pretty morbid. From thence we traveled without anything worthy of notice happening till we came to an Indian town, about 20 miles from Montreal. When we were about a gunshot from the town, the Indians made as many life shouts as they had prisoners, and as many dead ones as they had scalps. The men and women came out to meet us, obviously knowing um, the, the number of killed that they, that they had scalped and the number of life prisoners they had, even before uh, seeing them. They stripped me naked, after which they pointed to a wigwam and told me to run to it, pursuing me all the way with sticks and stones. This is something that was called the gauntlet. It was, it was, it was, um, it was a tradition for, for Indians who were returning to a village or entering a village with live prisoners to force them to run the gauntlet. And, and a lot of times, a lot of the villagers would line up on both sides with sticks or other weapons, and the, the hostage would have to run to safety while they hit them. And usually it was designed so that at some point there would be a, a really bad blow to knock them unconscious. Um, and it kind of depended, you know, they wanted to see their, their bravery and in this process. And if they just kind of wimped out, they might kill them. Um, and sometimes the hostage would would do something smart, like knock down one of the Indians, take his club, and, and use it to get to the end or, or, or beat some of them. You know? And sometimes when that happened, you know, a lot of the other Indians would laugh, and uh, they really appreciated it. So that was one of the ways of surviving the gauntlet. Next day, we went to Montreal, where I was carried before Governor Vaudreuil and examined. Afterwards, I was taken into a French mer merchant's house, and there I lived for three days. The third night, two of the Indians that took me came in drunk and asked for me, upon which the lady called me into the room, and as I, as I went and stood by the door, one of them began to dance the war dance about me, designing to kill me, but as he lifted up his hand to stab me, I catched hold of it with one of mine and with the other knocked him down, and then ran up Garrett and hid. The lady sent for some neighbors to clear the, the house of her guests, which they did. It was a very cold night, and one of the Indians, being excessively drunk, fell down near the house, and was found in the morning froze to death. The Indians came to the house, and finding their brother dead, said I had killed him, and gathered a number together with their guns, and beset the house, and demanded me of the lady, saying I should die the most cruel death. The lady told me of it, and, I advi and advised me to hide myself in the cellar under the pipes of wine, which I did. They searched the house and even came down the cellar, but they could not find me. The lady desired a French man to tell the Indians that he saw me without the city running away. They soon took after me in every which way. The merchant pitying my condition covered me with a blanket and carried me in his conveyance about five miles to a village where his wife's father lived in order to keep me out of the way of the Indians. When the Indians that pursued me had returned and could not find me, they concluded that I was concealed by the merchant, and applied to the governor that I might be delivered to them, in order that they might kill me for killing their brother, adding, by way of threatening, that if I was not delivered up to them, that they would turn and be against the French. The governor told them he had examined into the matter and found that I did not kill the Indian, nor know anything about it, but that he froze to death. 
On this they said they would not kill me, but would have me live with them. The governor then informed them where I was, and they came and took me with them to Montreal again, and dressed me in their habit. On the 1st of May we set off to go to the Mississippi, where my Indian master belonged, and two other English prisoners with them. For several days the Indians treated me very ill, but it wore off. We went in bark canoes till we came to Lake Sacrament, the first carrying place. We continued our journey till we came to the Ohio, where General Braddock was defeated. That would be Pittsburgh, uh, or what is now Pittsburgh. Then it was Fort Pitt, uh, or it was actually Fort Duquesne uh, when, it, when it was the French version, and then uh, later became Fort Pitt, where the uh, Monongahela and the Allegheny Rivers come together. Here they took one of the prisoners and with a knife ripped open his belly, took one end of his guts and tied it to a tree, and then whipped the miserable, miserable man round and round till he expired, obliging me to dance while they made their game at the dying man. This is also the site where after the defeat of General Braddock, uh, numerous British officers were taken prisoner, and I believe there was maybe three British officers that were burnt to death at the stake right there on the shore of the Allegheny River in modern-day Pittsburgh. And the story goes that for years afterwards, nothing would grow where those three burnings took place because of all the human grease that leached out of the bodies in the fire and saturated the ground. And that's just kind of a, um, you know, something that I read once uh, that, that it just, you can almost see it and smell it. And, and uh, that's just one of those awful details that you don't forget. From hence, we set off to go to an Indian town about 200 miles from the Ohio, where we arrived in 15 days and tarried there. The third night, one of the Indians had a mind to kill me. As I was standing by the fire, he ran against me to push me into the flames, but I jumped over and escaped being burnt. He followed me around and around and struck me several times with his head and fist, which so provoked me that as he was coming at me again, I struck him and knocked him backwards. The other Indian laughed and said I was a good fellow. The next day we set off for the Mississippi, where we arrived the 23rd of August, having passed over 32 carrying places from our leaving Montreal. So, in other words, there's 32 different points at which they had to um, get out of the water, uh, pick up their canoes, and carry them by hand to the next possible um, spot to get back in the canoes. When we came here, I was ordered to live with a squaw who was to be my mother. I lived with her during the winter and was employed in hunting, dressing leather, etc., being, being clothed after the Indian fashion. In the spring, a French merchant came to a trading and bark came a trading in bark canoes, and on his return wanted hands to help him. He prevailed with my mistress to let me go with him to Montreal. When we came there and the canoes were unloaded, I went into the country and lived with his wife, wife's father and worked at the farming business for my victuals and my clothing. I fared no better than a slave. The family often endeavored to persuade me to be of their religion, making many fair promises if I would, wanting to see what alteration this would make in their conduct towards me. Uh, I take that to be Catholicism. One Sunday morning I came to my mistress and said, Mother, will you give me good clothes if I will go to Mass? She answered, Yes, son, as good as any in the house. So she did so, and I rode to church with two of her daughters, and giving me directions on how to behave, they told me, if I must do as they did. 
When we came home, I sat at the table and ate with the family, and every night and morning was taught my prayers. Thus I lived till the next spring, when my master's son-in-law that brought me from the Mississippi came for me to return with him. As he was going again there to trade, I refused to go and I applied to the governor. I was then put into goal, where I tarried five weeks, living on bread and water and horse beef. When some prisoners were going to be sent to Quebec in order to be transported to old France, I went there with him. Here we laid in goal six weeks. I think that, that meaning he, he's in jail, essentially. But happening to see, oh, jail, goal, he, he writes, he's just misspelling, misspelling jail. So he's in jail for six weeks in Quebec after being five weeks in jail in uh, Montreal. But happening to see one of my master's sons, he prevailed with me to go back with him and work as formerly. I consented and tarried with him till the 8th of September. There was at the next house an English lad, a prisoner. We agreed to run away together, through the woods, that so, if possible, we might get home to our friends. But how to get provisions for the way, we know, we know not, till I was allowed a gun to kill pigeons, which were very plenty here. I shot a number, split and dried them, and concealed in the woods. We agreed to set off on a Sunday morning, and were to meet at an appointed place, which we did, and began our journey towards Crown Point. After we had traveled for twenty-two days, fifteen of which we had no provisions except roots, worms, and such like, we were so weak and faint that we could scarce walk. My companion gave out and could go no further. He desired me to leave him, but I would not. I went and found three frogs and divided them between us. The next morning he died. I sat down by him and at first concluded to make a fire as I had my gun and eat his flesh and if no relief came to die with him but finally came to this resolution. Now, before we get to his resolution, he says he could make a fire because he had his gun. I take that to mean that he would use the, the flint mechanism on the flintlock to make sparks using gunpowder to light some tinder to make a fire. So he finally came to this resolution, to cut off his bones, as much flesh as I could, and tie it up in a handkerchief, and so proceed as well as I could. Accordingly did so, and buried my companion on the day I left him. I got three frogs more the next day. Being weak and tired, about nine o'clock I sat down, but could not eat my friend's flesh. I expected soon to die myself, and while I was commending my soul to God, I saw a partridge light just by me which I thought was sent by providence. I was so weak that I could not hold my gun. But by resting, I brought my piece to bear so that I killed the partridge. While I was eating it, there came two pigeons so near that I killed them both. As I fired two guns, I heard a gun at a distance. I fired again and was answered twice. This roused me. I got up and traveled as fast as I could towards the report of the guns. And about a half mile off, I saw three Canadians. I went to them and pretended to be a Dutchman, one of their own regulars that was lost in the woods. They brought me to Crown Point, upon which I desired to see the commanding officer. He knew me again, and he asked me how I came there. I told him my story and what difficulties I had met with. He ordered me to the guardhouse and to be put in irons. About an hour after he sent, afterwards, he sent me a bowl of rice. After I had been at Crown Point for 10 or 12 days, the commanding officer sent me back under a guard of 12 soldier, soldiers to Montreal in a bateau, and wrote a letter, as I afterwards understood, to my master not to hurt me. When I came to the house, one of his daughters met me at the door and pushed me back. 
and went and called her father. At this house there was a French captain of the regulars billeted. He was a Protestant. He, hearing my voice, called me to him and asked me where I had been. Upon my telling him, he called me a fool for attempting a thing so impossible. My master coming in took him by the shoulder and threatened to kill me for stealing his gun when I ran away. But the good captain prevented him from using any violence. The captain asked me if I had been before the governor. I told him I had not. And he then advised my master to send his son with me, who was an ensign among the Canadians. He was an officer uh, with the Canadian uh, soldiers stationed there. When we came to the small ferry which we were to pass, I refused to go any further, and after a great deal of dew, he went without me. On his return, he said he had got leave of the governor, that I should go back to his father and work as uh, formerly. Accordingly, I lived with him till the 19th of November, and when Colonel Schuyler, that would be the, the, uh, the, the British um, army officer, uh, when Colonel Schuyler was coming away, I came with him to Albany. Here I was taken sick, and some of the light infantry promised me, if I would insist, that they would provide for me, and having neither friends or money, I was obliged to consent. They ordered me a bed and, to care, and for care to be taken of me. Five days afterwards, they put me in, on board a sloop and sent me to Kingston, and put me in a hospital where I was in three months. So, in other words, at this point, although he, he, he apparently skips a lot, he's, he's traded back to, in a prisoner exchange, back to the British from the French. The regiment remained here till May when we went to Albany, from thence to Fort William Henry, and then to Ticonderoga and Crown Point, both of which places surrendered to General Amherst. On, on September 19th, went pilot of a scout to Kahnawaga with Lieutenant McCurdy, and on our return, as we were on Lake Champlain, turning a point of land and under great way, we discovered a large cove of French brig, but it was unhappily too late for us to make our escape. We were pursued and taken prisoners, being seven in number, and the next morning sent to Nut Island where we were stripped by the Indians and dressed after their manner. So here again, for a second time, he's captured. And they had happened upon a French brig um, ship of war, and they could not run it. Uh, it was too late, so they took him prisoner yet again. From thence, we were conducted to Montreal and examined by the governor. And I told him that I had been a prisoner there two years and had lived with such a farmer and desired liberty to go to him again, upon which he sent for my master's son, and being informed of the truth of what I had related, consented. I tarried with the farmer till November 25th, when, by a flag of truce, 250 English prisoners came to Crown Point, where I rejoiced, rejoined my regiment. After repeated application to General Amherst, I was dismissed, and returned in peace to my father's house, um, and that would be in Massachusetts beginning the beginning of January 1760, after having been absent three years and almost eight months. And Thomas Brown ends his narrative with the following. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, Fenice, Thomas Brown. A plain narrative of the uncommon sufferings and remarkable deliverance of Thomas Brown of Charleston in New England, printed in 1760. It was reprinted again 
by the Magazine of History in 1908. And again, that's just a, a really interesting story that I had never heard before. I'm told in the first person, and you know, I have every reason to believe that that's a true story. And it's just almost stranger than fiction because, I mean, you really just, if you were going to make up a story, you wouldn't make up some of these things. Um, but but uh, captured twice, um, escaped twice, um, saw more than one person, you know, tortured to death. Um, one of the few real accounts uh, of seeing somebody burned at the stake. And, uh, you know, just a very early narrative as well um, from the French and Indian War. And this guy is like 18, you know, when this starts, or 17 when this starts. And, and uh, you know, the whole thing lasts almost four years. So just a crazy story. And, uh, you know, it wasn't easy to find, but, you know, there it is. And I, thanks for listening to it. I hope, hope you enjoyed it. And uh, um, it's also available on our website at scavengeology.com if you, go, if you search the site there. Uh, you search for Thomas Brown, and you'll find the entire written story here and a lot of other stories on our website. And also uh, follow us on Facebook um, at Scavengeology. Thanks for listening.